folks, welcome to another Besides the Norm podcast. My name is Stephen, we have Craig on the other side of the table. You can't get any more radio voice than that, the intro. That's true. Uh, we also have in line Bruce Henderson from Renew Scotland. Uh, how are you doing, Bruce? I'm doing fine, thank you. Fantastic. Do, do you like the radio voice or do, do you hate that kind of, that kind of sound? Um, I think most people don't really like their own voice when they hear it on radio or recorded or, or whatever. Um, unfortunately, you, you know, if you're in politics or you do acting or radio or whatever, you, you have to listen to your voice anyway. Yeah. There you go. That's it. Um, so, uh, you represent Renew Scotland now. You know a bit about a bit more about Renew Scotland, Craig, than me. Do you want to start that again? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> really, really awful there. So, actually, you know what we'll do? We'll start off with uh, the usual question we usually start with. Uh, we'll go and try and talk about your childhood. So, how was your childhood, Bruce? And like, where did you grow up, and all that kind of thing? Uh, my childhood was quite a long time ago. Right. Um, it, I guess it would come under the heading of okay. It could have been better. It, um, it, it could have been a lot worse, I guess. Uh, born in Edinburgh, initially raised in Terpichan, uh, West Lothian, moved to Edinburgh. Spent six months of my life living in Johannesburg in South Africa. Went to school there. Coming okay. from Scotland, that was really odd because you know people had different bosses, a little of apartheid. Um, came back to live in Edinburgh. Um, went to South Morningside Primary School when I came back. Boromir in Edinburgh. Um, left school to be an apprentice telephone engineer. I got to climb telephone poles and run cables and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then realised that that was kind of all there was. And um, I kind of wanted something a bit more. I was a union rep at the time as well, and uh, ended up going into the voluntary sector and spent most of my adult life in the voluntary sector with a few uh, kind of wee projects with um, private sector and public sector organisations, um, including Scottish Enterprise for a wee while, and then realised that it's a very uncreative place to be. Uh, and they also like to spend money <laughs> coming from the voluntary sector. Uh, being able to spend money quite so freely was a bit of a shock to the system, I think. Mm-hmm. If I could just go go back as well, like usually we we like to ask, um, what was the first sort of initial spark that got you into politics? Do you remember anything that happened, like like maybe in your teens or something like that, or younger? Yeah, I mean, when I was uh, sixteen, I was the Secretary of the Edinburgh branch of the Campaign for the Scottish Assembly. Uh, always been passionate about uh, a Scottish Assembly or Scottish Parliament. Um, not so much on the, 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 the independent side, but certainly having that um, devolved capacity. Uh, and the SDP came along way back in the 1980s. And I joined the SDP because I've always had an interest in politics, even in, uh, in my kind of school years. Um, and there really wasn't a party that I kind of looked at and go, oh yes, they're for me. Uh, the quality of politicians was maybe a bit better back then, but the tendency for politicians to be less than honest was still prevalent back then as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when the SDP went, I 
um, until the new came along and I came back into politics because I thought, last here's a, a group who aren't part of the kind of political bubble and really wanted to do something different, make politics different. Uh, and so I kind of got back involved in politics in the last two years. So that was one of the things that sort of made Renew interesting for me was the fact that you didn't appeal to politicians, you appealed to, like when it came to standing candidates, you didn't try and appeal to getting politicians who want to be politicians standing, you wanted ordinary people standing for ordinary things. Yep, absolutely. Um, And I think I'm probably the only person who's um, been a member of the political party, I think, who's standing. Uh, Peter Morton, who's standing over in west of Scotland, has stood as an independent for the last few years. And we actually saw an awful lot of commonality between what Peter was standing for and what we were standing for. And it's a very good conversation. And Peter joined our our group and has been a very um, supportive part of the team and a very good addition. Uh, And essentially, we are independently minded people. We're not in this to pursue a party line. We're not going to operate a three-line whip. All the other parties do. We uh, take the view that our constituents come first, uh, then our country, and then our party. I think too much of politics is about party comes first. And if there's a bit of time, the constituents in the country. And I think it's about changing policy back to the idea that it should really be about um, the people rather than the party. Yeah, this is why I'm not a huge fan of sort of party politics and party democracy the way it is laid out now. There's a few countries, I I couldn't give examples, but I know there are countries that exist where they have certain sections of uh, elections where they don't have political parties, they just have people standing. The, the parties might exist as a background organisation, mm. but you're not voting for parties, you're voting for people, and the party is like It's not even mentioned. And that's kind of a, a system that I would quite like, because parties tend to, as you say, they tend to drown out constituent issues and yep. uh, individual thought, and it's just, here's the party line, stick to it, or leave. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's right. I mean, if you look at... If you have a debate in the Scottish Parliament, for example, on a, on a you know, key issue, you already know the results before they go in because they'll vote down party lines. So the question of why you have a debate, where essentially all we're going to do is stand up and regurgitate their party policy, mm-hmm. is a bit pointless. Yeah. Um, if you had independent-minded people, and one of the things I should have said um, when you asked me about the politics, like, I did actually get involved in politics a little bit, but I didn't see it as being involved in politics such. I campaigned with Margaret MacDonald um, when she was an independent candidate um, for, I think, the election. Um, largely because here's a lady who, amazing lady in her own right, yeah. uh, a very good sense of humour, but um, she was standing up for what she believed was right. Yeah. And she wasn't towing a party line. She had particular views. I didn't agree with all of them. But I would rather have a few more Margaret McDonald's in the yeah. Parliament and mix up a bit than have a lot of people who just do as they're told. So just just to be clear, uh, Margot McDonald is the ex SNP uh, independent she left or was kicked out of the SNP, I think. I can't remember which one. 
Yeah, that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, she upset, she upset the leadership, and yeah. so they bumped her down the list. And she said, well, tough, I, I'm not going to take that. And so she stood in her own right. And at least one of the elections, she got enough votes to have a second Margaret McDonald elected. Um, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, she was the only, the only one on her list. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, that must yeah, have been... The person that got an, uh, elected because there was only one of her must have been thrilled. Yeah. She was quite radical. She, was she not quite a bit of a lefty? Was she not quite any radical politics? She, there were areas where she, you know, not being part of the political party, she was able to take the shackles off. So, for example, one of the areas that she had a very keen interest in was um, people being able to die with dignity uh, because, and, and she spent a lot of time researching that and talking to people, and she had a very um, clear view that there's a point where people should have some right to determine if they're going to die a horrible death. Yeah. Why shouldn't they have some right in terms of, and obviously not just a little sign of paper, there are safeguards and all sorts of things in there. Um, she also uh, took a great deal of interest in um, helping prostitutes in lease. Uh, I don't mean by them, but there was a, a, a prostitute education project which was about helping to support um, prostitutes, again, out of prostitution. But, but essentially, these were things that were regarded as quite controversial. But it illustrates having a, um, an independently-minded person means that we actually start engaging with issues that we maybe pretend we don't really need to do anything yeah. about, but actually we should be. You know, and, and I think it's that level of not so much controversy. I think it's only controversial because it's not in the political bubble. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, but it's these are issues that you still need to recognise. You, know, you can't just ignore that these things. You, you actually have to do something about it. And Margot then took it on. And obviously, you had the whole thing about the Scottish Parliament building and the cost overruns, the fact that no one was ever held accountable for a building that cost 11 times the original cost. You know, <laughs> which is a, a massive overspend. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Margot was the one who kept going on the case. So, you were talking a bit about Margot's views on uh, dying with dignity and uh, dealing with prostitutes. I guess, uh, would they be things that Renew would be in support of as well? Similar things that Margot was, was pushing? Or is, is there a, has there been a change since then? For you? No, I mean, to be fair, um, I haven't really thought about these issues for um, well, since Margot was about. Um, it's not something we've taken a position on that's really stopping. I think it is, you know, these are things, and there are probably other ones as well, which we may come up across as we talk, um, where we should be thinking through, you know, what, what we do, because where there are challenges that exist, and poverty is a good one, um, the other parties aren't talking about ending poverty. It's never been on the Labour Party's agenda. It's never been something that the Greens have argued. It's never been something um, 
really the, the Liberal Democrats have pushed and well, the Conservatives seem to like having poor people, but that's another matter. Um, you know, that's another one where we should be looking at how we end poverty, not making allowances. You know, we can make a massive difference to people's lives and to our economy and to our communities with that one single, you know, direction is end poverty. Make government have an absolute obligation to ensure a basic, decent quality of life for all the people. And there are some wonderful examples of how you can look at things like debt poverty. Um, there are some quite ambitious uh, examples of really tying climate change with ending fuel poverty yeah. and, and these kind of things. But, you know, it, it, being able to get outside of the political, political bubble and start to look at it from a kind of fresh perspective, if you like, because I think the problem is when you're in the political bubble, you only see what's in the political bubble. And we need to kind of burst it a wee bit and change the air, I guess. Um, and things like prostitution, things like um, dying with dignity are things that fall into that category of things, of, of areas that we should really be a bit clearer about. We should try and identify what is our long-term view on like, these things. Because yeah. they're not going to go away, they're here. And people live longer which means that people are going to have those kind of more debilitating um, issues uh, as, as, they, as, they, as they get older. We're, we're talking on a day when Prince Philip has died. You know, so we're, we're kind of, um, he died at 99 years old. It, 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 it's almost symbolic of the fact that people live longer and will have um, mobility issues, sensory issues, um, chronic diseases and things that they wouldn't have had if we were back maybe 30 or 40 years ago when people died younger. Yeah. I was just thinking, on the, so the idea of like uh, getting rid of poverty, um, what would the uh, UBI and stuff like that, do you like believe that would help go in some way to help? Absolutely, absolutely. And in the 1980s, the Social Democrats actually had a proposal uh, which was called uh, personal allowance, which is essentially the same as UBI. So UBI is not new. It just had a different name in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And the only party that was pursuing it was Social Democrats. And then the Liberals joined in the alliance. And when the Liberals became Liberal Democrats, they kind of dropped the whole ending poverty idea. So we have had this uh, back in the 1980s. UBI, as it's now called, is now becoming uh, a kind of catchword for helping. People aren't seeing it as a way of ending poverty, they're seeing a way of, of changing it. I think UBI is one of a number of tools that we can use to end poverty, and I think it is something that we do need to introduce. Mm -hmm. But we need to go much further because debt poverty is not going to be solved by UBI. It might help, but it's certainly not going to solve. And debt poverty is one of the most um, damaging things because it's if you're someone who's almost permanently in debt for the whole of your life, and there's almost no way in which you can see that you can actually pay it off other than winning the lottery, then that's hugely stressful. It, it's a huge, huge burden on someone, and um, you know, it's something that we need to address. South Korea had a very interesting way of dealing with this. They had something called the Happy Fund. It's a brilliant idea. 
And what they decided was that um, anyone who had debt up to about $10,000, that was long-term debt, and they could demonstrate that they had tried hard to pay it off, could actually get it paid off from the happy fund. Mm-hmm. And what that did was, all these tens of thousands or however many people that were affected um, were able to effectively have a fresh start. And so instead of having this permanent debt and this complete inability to have any money to, to, to spend other than on very, very, very basics, they suddenly had a little bit more money. They could spend more money in the supermarket. They could actually go and enjoy life a bit more. So they actually stimulated the economy at a very local level. It changed their lives in terms of taking the stress and pressure off, which also improved their health, physical and mental. Mm-hmm. Um, and it meant that this wasn't something that was a permanent feature. They could go on and, and enjoy their life, have a better quality of life. And it's interesting also, if you look at New Zealand, New Zealand are now talking about quality of life as a way of measuring success of the government. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we're proposing here, is that we should have an absolute obligation by government to ensure a basic, decent quality of life. And that should be part of the measure of how successful government is. Because if it's not looking after the needs of its people, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, like, the current measurement is almost irrelevant most of the time. GDP goes up yeah. and people get poorer in real terms. It kind of doesn't mean anything anymore. Imagine trying to help people out and then like everything everything like turns out to be a lot better in life. Imagine that. It'd be weird there. Eh? Mm-hmm. Craziness. <laughs> a silly idea. Yeah. <laughs> like, but there's some interesting sorry, I've got to say there's some interesting examples around the world of how people have tackled some of these things. And what we need to do is persuade other people to join us and look at a longer-term strategy because it's probably a 20- or 30-year project. So everyone needs to kind of sign up to it. But strand by strand and adjusting the way that government works at all levels can, I believe, actually end poverty. And poverty can be part of our history. And I think that would be a brilliant place to be. Mm-hmm. So have you heard of, I would imagine you might have, uh, Andrew Yan? Um off the top of my head, it just ring a bell. So Andrew Young was one of the presidential candidates in 2020. And uh, his idea, uh, his ideas sort of remind me of the way you're talking right now. Uh, it sounds like you would sort of be on the same terms as Andrew Young. His thing, he's, he's, he's got his own term. It's uh, I think it's human-centred capitalism where he supports... Uh, like sort of startup companies, and then they help inject funds into the economy to then fund this quote-unquote human-centered capitalism, where they support things like either UBI or negative income tax, where people are guaranteed funds, and there's uh, things to sort of limit how bad student loan debt can be, and how I mean general debt as well, and that sounds like along the same lines as you're thinking. Yeah, I mean, I'll certainly go and have a look at them after we've, uh, we've had our conversation because I think it's, it's one of these things. If we genuinely want um, people to have a decent life, then you have to tackle poverty. You, you, you know, you, you can 
claim you're going to close the educational attainment gap till you're blue in the face, it's never, ever going to happen unless you actually end poverty. It simply won't. And it's unrealistic to promise that you're going to close the educational attainment gap in any meaningful way unless you actually end poverty. And I think that's the problem about the political bubble that we have here in Scotland and indeed in the UK generally, is that politicians live in this little fantasy world that says, if we promise this and we throw some money in there, that'll sort it and we'll be fine for another few years. And then we'll just come up with a different solution that will involve doing a bit of tinkering and throwing some more money at it. If we keep just doing that, then we'll keep getting elected and everything will be fine. The problem is the political bubble doesn't actually solve the problems. Yeah. And that's what we need to do is actually change that round so that we become problem solvers rather than just looking at political survival election to election. Yeah, I agree. A, a lot of people like to separate uh, social politics and economic politics. And I think that's wrong. I think they're linked in very many ways. I can't remember if you said it before we started recording or after, but you were talking about ending poverty and how ending poverty on its own would start to help on these health issues and then you would mm. you would automatically start lowering drug issues since a lot of drug issues are caused by poverty and stress and things like that. And it would automatically start solving these other issues as well. Not completely solving them, but it would go a long way better than just trying to add in extra policies without focusing on this sort of main cause. That's absolutely right. And, you know, addiction poverty is one of the, the worst as well, because once you get stuck into it, it's really difficult for people to come out of that addiction. One of the addictions is drugs. Another addiction is gambling. And the other addictions around about that as well, where it, it's a kind of escape from what people have in terms of their, their life. And unless you change that environment that people are in, that just gets worse and worse and worse. And it does, you know, I've seen some figures uh, or, or, um, around uh, UBI itself in terms of the number of um, babies that, that are born with that are, are healthier and, and, and larger. Uh, at the moment, people who live in poverty, what people have underweight babies. We have one of the highest death rates, suicide rates, for young men in Europe. And that's partly due to isolation, it's partly due to uh, poverty. Um, and those two things go hand in hand as well, poverty and isolation. Again, if you, if you actually ended poverty, people would have a much better quality of life and they would engage much more with other people. And um, you can actually reduce the isolation. Um, but it's well reminded, and it, and it is. You know, it, it, and it's one of the frustrations I've had all my life working in uh, communities around Scotland is seeing people work, uh, working hard day after day. And some of them are struggling every single day. Day. They don't have a day off. There isn't a single day they aren't challenged, they aren't struggling, they aren't trying to get by. And we need to change that. Um, and this may be my last opportunity to try and push for that and change it. I'm not looking to be a careerist politician. I, I don't see in my 50s that I'm going to have a long career as a politician. But if what I can do, and what we can do as a group, is to get the other parties and the other people and to, to come together and go, you know what, we should do this, then we will have achieved, I guess, a kind of big step forward, a step change, if you like. So you mentioned the isolation there. 
and it just reminded me that we've interviewed, I think you're the 10th, ninth candidate, 10th candidate we've interviewed. 9th, it'll be aye. Uh, I think you're like 6th this week, so there's been a lot of people we've spoken this week. <laughs> been busy. And we've not spoken about lockdowns and limitations and I was kind of shy to for that for some reason, aye. I think we've been too focused on post-election uh, and we've not talked so, about aye, aye. what's happening it's, now. What's uh, your view or your news view on the current situation and lockdowns and the concept of them and things like that? Well, let's treat these things to some extent differently. Isolation itself was an issue before COVID came along. We have a lot more people living longer and I think I'm right saying we have the, the, the highest number of older single people because partners have died um, than ever before. I remember working at a, 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 a group in uh, Wester Hills, and the chairman at the time there, Chackle Bob Rootsbank, a real gent, um, he said that one of the, the biggest killers for older people will be isolation, and I believe he's absolutely right. Yeah. So isolation itself is a big issue, and we need to look at ways in which we um, change that. Part of that is about people having the resource to be able to go out. It's one of the reasons people are isolated is because they can't afford to go out and therefore they cut themselves off and it becomes harder and harder to go out. And it's something I've noticed in the course of the last year. Um, I've actually noticed I've kind of uh, developed a kind of agoraphobic thing where, <laughs> because all I was doing at one point was going out to go to the shop, the local supermarket and back. And, you know, even I've suffered to some extent from that isolation. Um, and when we unlock we can't all rush together. We're still going to have to, in my opinion, be a bit cautious about how we open out because everyone's at different levels in terms of vaccination. There are other variants which we're aware of. doesn't necessarily mean they're here in, in Scotland, but we know they exist, which we're less certain about. Some of those variants do affect children, and we're now talking about vaccinating our, our younger people. Uh, I think the Pfizer um, vaccine has been tested on uh, youngsters as, as, as young as 12. Yeah, so there's an expectation. Yeah. You know, so, um, so that isolation is going to be with us still for a little while from before COVID, and we're going to have the additional isolation that we've had with COVID. And isolation is a huge issue insofar as people are the, the, the group animals. You know, we, 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 I'm not saying we're hunting packs so or trying to avoid that, but we do. You know, we, we, we like that engagement. We like to um, talk to people. We like to hold hands. We like to um, just to engage. It's part of who we are. Um, and I think it's one of the things which we need to um, probably look to the voluntary sector, um, partly. Partly look to befriending type groups partly look to ourselves looking out for our neighbours. You know, I've at least been able to engage with my neighbours um, and that's been good. But I, I don't think there's a, you know, there's not a single route that we go that says that's going to solve it. But isolation I think is a big issue insofar as um, it was big before COVID, but it's more significant I think as we come out of COVID. Have you heard of the Men's Shed movement? Oh, just about to bring yeah. it up. Yeah, so we like to bring this up occasionally that we live in a town called Kennewy and we actually have, I think, the the biggest in terms the biggest of membership, in uh, men's shed uh-huh. in Kennewy. 
and it, and Scotland. Obviously, it's the biggest in Canada. It's the only in Canada. Uh, and that that does a hell of a lot of good. Partly because of the person who runs it, he just never stops. He never shut up, shuts up. He never stops speaking to you. He's always talking about it, and uh, it's brilliant because he gets loads of fun. Obviously, COVID's kind of messed up mm-hmm. this year, but uh, I mean, they're open twice a week. They've got a, a big mintet works mint it. So they've got a big a big cool workshop. They've got a bunch of uh, arts and crafts stuff and you can pretty much do what you like. Mm-hmm. There's like 60 or 70 people coming on Tuesday, 60 or 70 people coming on Friday. It's a fantastic thing and I think there should be one in every single town because it seems to have helped and a I ton think, of people. I think they're getting there as well. They're getting quite close to that because there's like a new ones opened in Glenrothes could call the... Um, I, I, I don't know, like what area are you... Uh, are you from Bruce? Where are you from? Well, I, I live in Dunfermline at, at the moment, but I actually, I actually worked with Clear in Buckhaven oh, for nice, right. four years. Yep, and the main shed movement, we actually, I have a very strong passion for what Clear does. It's one of those organisations that is very community driven. It is a group that kind of looks at things and says, look, there's a, there's a gap here. How do we make a difference? Mm. And um, there's a kind of similar idea in terms of the pilot workshop that uh, Colin um, Pentland runs for, for Clear, um, where they take um, pallets and convert them into um, garden furniture, planters, all mm. sorts of things, bike workshops. And it's the same idea of bringing people together um, to do some very practical things, but it's the banter and the engagement in between that actually makes the difference with it. Mm. And and yeah, I'm I'm very well aware of the, the men's shed movement. I think it's I think it's really good. The one in, in Buckhaven sometimes includes ladies as well. Um Yeah. Yeah, the one's the same, yeah. yeah I think it's that's, the community shed. that's part of the reason the uh, membership's so high. Yeah. yeah there's actually, a lot more women there. <laughs> that was actually one of the main so so I was actually standing in, in the council elections at this time and I went up as part of that campaign to go up and sort of see what was going on in the community and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I was at the first meeting and that was one of the main things that was talked about was the men's shed bit. And instantly it was said, nope, community shed, we want men and women in. Mm-hmm. So that was cool. That was cool. Women fighting for that shit. Yeah. That was awesome. I knew like we, we've been going up so often that like your dad's up there. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. Everybody's up there and it's great for the old gents. Great for the old gents. And young gents. Yeah, yeah. young gents. I think I think the key, uh, I think the key thing is that every community needs a community focus. Mm-hmm. You know, Clear provides that community focus to a large extent in Buckhaven and, and to some extent to metal with the, the the growing spaces and the various uh, volunteering activities. The main shed in in Kennewy, and I lived in Kennewy for for a, a, a while as well. Um, main shed is a kind of clear community focal point where people are able to come together and do very practical and very positive things. Um, and, and I think it's having those kind of projects that adapt to the, the, the specific area. So, you know, they're not all the same. They're not identical. They actually evolve around the people that are in, in, in engaged in the actual um, development of it. And everyone who comes in adds something new to it. But it's creating that focal point where people can come together and use their skills and their knowledge and it's, but it's the engagement that people have while they're doing this that 
that adds huge, huge value. So let's uh, reverse back a little bit. Uh, okay. You said you lived in Kenway for a little while. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, <clears throat> there's a housing development up at the top end of Kenway. Oh, the rich um, bit. And this is a few. Pardon? The rich bit of Kenway. The rich bit of Kenway. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it as as such a thing as there. <laughs> Um, I, I, I guess it could be. I guess it could be. I know Kenaway is fairly varied, and, and then as it runs into Windigate, that changes again. Mm-hmm. But um, it, my partner and I have kind of got together, and apparently you, you have to live in a, a, a house that neither of you have lived in and whatever. So um, we actually managed to get a job where we lived in a brand-new house for a year uh, looking after... Um, uh, private housing development, uh, and this was the height of the recession as well. It was a very good deal, and it, it was very good. The, the guy who owned it in his seventies and was a bit, um, I'm trying to be diplomatic now. Um, uh, he, he wasn't someone who was easy to get on with. Let's leave it at that, okay? okay. It was for Kenny. Um, so, it was for Kenny. you trying to say, Bruce? <laughs> well, he was, he was actually from Blackburn in Lancashire. And uh, what he was doing, yeah, what he was doing was buying up um, partial developments where the developer was unable to continue because he was cash rich. He'd buy them up, change them, and then progress them. And um, he would buy them cheap, basically. Uh, But not long after we left, um, he was actually prosecuted, not for the first time, but the health safety executive for having one of these um, workmen in the bucket on a digger high up to the first floor with no helmets or anything. (laughs) And someone took a picture. Um, Yes. Uh, Anyway, it was an interesting experience. Uh, I liked Kenaway, to be fair. Um, uh, Very easy to get around and um, very good chip shop. I will agree with you right there. Yes, the little fryers, the... Free advertising for the Little Friars. Shout it to the Little Friars. Yeah. What about Ramzan's? You like Ramzan's? Ramzan's has got the best pizza in the world. Arguably, yes. Um, I, I generally don't go to chip shops for pizza. Oh, it's not a chip shop. It's well, an, Indian. an Indian place. This one. You get pizza for the Indian. All right, no, I've not. I tend to think that Italian places are the place to go for pizza. I don't know any yeah. Italian places. Well, this is this is the, the issue. Oh, actually, the chip shop is Italian. It's an Italian guy that runs it now. Aye, this is I could they actually done pizza for a short while as well, <laughs> which is um, amazingly like Italian, um, Turkish, uh, Indian. They all seem to sell exactly the same stuff, uh, which yeah. is quite quite a common theme. Yeah, uh, especially around like well, just in Scotland really as a whole. We towns like Kenway though, it seems to be the mo- the most common thing. Ah, yeah, there you go. Right, anyway. Right, so we... We'll go off Kenway-based food. I can't believe we started talking about Lyle Fryer. <laughs> so, do you have any sort of, like, like proper, like, local policies that you would like to go over? Like, uh, we spoke to... Three chippies for everybody. <laughs> we spoke to somebody the other day, like, talking about the local train station. Uh, you've got th- such things as, like, the Leaving Mouth Rail link and stuff like that. Yeah. Do you have anything you're sort of, like, wanting to... Forward. Where do you start? I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the Leaving Rail Link, absolutely. Um, and um, Alan Armstrong, who's one of the key campaigners for the Leaving Rail Link, is also the one of the founders of Clear. So obviously has quite a, 
a good level of knowledge on, on this one. It, it seems like a no-brainer. Yeah. You know, put a rail link in and you significantly increase people's ability to travel. And if you're looking at traveling to work and uh, getting jobs and things, then a rail connection is essential. Leaving High Street has gone through a fairly difficult phase over the last few years. Um, Methyl and Buckhaven. Buckhaven has the, the poorest data zone in the whole place. Um, so these are areas that really could do with a, a significant economic boost. And we've had a bypass of course go uh, just there in the Methyl Dock. So absolutely, I think the real link there is I mean, they should start doing it tomorrow. The, 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 the route exists. Yeah. Just get on with it. I, I, I cannot understand why it's taken so long for the powers that be to say, let's just go ahead with it. It, just, it, you know, it couldn't be simpler. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a suggestion of a rail link also from Lucas into St Andrews. I think that's more complicated because St Andrews is, is such a historic place. Um, but I think because if, if you were going to build a kind of transport network, my view would be you build it round rail. And ideally, you'd want to make it as environmentally friendly as possible. And if you look at Germany, for example, southern Germany are building um, hydrogen trains. So they're not even going to have cables and things. In Australia, they're, they're, they're doing trains with solar um, and charging points at each station and so on. So, you know, there's the, the stuff we can do there. Um, one of my bugbears about Kakori has always been that people complain about the high street dying. I think one of the things we have to recognise is that the high street left the high street 20, 30 years ago when we started doing um, retail parks on the edge of town because it's free parking. You can get clothes, you can get food, you can get um, hardware supplies, you can get stationary supplies and everything. All the stuff you used to get on the high street. And I think the reality is we have to change our thinking about how the high streets work. Uh, the only exception, of course, to that is actually St Andrews because they seem to have a reasonably vibrant um, local economy. But that's partly through golf and it's partly through the university. So I think one of the things we need to do is rethink how we evolve the high streets and stop trying to pretend that we can have the high streets that we had you know, 20, or 30, 40, 50 years ago. Because we're not ever going to have that again. Let's be realistic about this. And let's stop trying to, to, to throw money into something that's never going to happen. So part of that is looking at some of the retail accommodation that maybe was residential at one point, got converted to retail or got converted to offices, put it back to um, residential accommodation. So at least you have more people living around the high street and therefore more passing trade for those shops that are there. <coughs> let's look at things that are a bit more touristy. We've got good tourists. Um, thing going. So, Dunfermline, for example, you've got you know, Pitton Creek Park Gate, and you've got a wonderful stretch up to the high street. Uh, there's a lot of history and, and, and stuff there. So, we could do some, some stuff there. When we come to Kakodi, one of the things which I think is only really being recognised now is that Kakodi has this fantastic waterfront space. Yeah. And what I cannot comprehend is Overlooking this amazing waterfront along the promenade are multi-storey car parks, a swimming pool where basically you're indoors. It should be swimming with flats and hotels 
and restaurants and so on, overlooking the water and connecting the water to the high street so that what you actually have is quite a vibrant space where you've got more people living there, but you're actually harnessing the waterfront and perhaps looking how you harness the waterfront as well. I know in uh, Leaven, for example, there's some kind of places talking about having a, a pier with yeah. a kind of big whale thing on it and so on. Mm-hmm. Not so sure about the whale thing. Pier <laughs> thing's interesting. Um, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm never quite sure about these kind of things. The pier thing's a more practical thing. Yeah. I think, yes, it, it might attract people. The whale might attract people too, but I look at the cost and think, is that is that the real value to that? Mm-hmm. Um, the advantage Leaven has is it's got a nice sandy beach, which used to extend all the way along to Buckhaven and the Bray. Uh, Buckhaven and Methwood used to be holiday destinations years and years ago. Which, when you look at it today, you think, really? Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was a, they actually had a beach that went all the way along. So I think it's about looking at how we redesign our towns a bit. The other bit that is about there for me is, <clears throat> um, and you let me have a rant here, which is great, no, but the other thing I think about is cycling. You know, we've had 20 or 30 years to work out that bikes are here and that we need to change the way we do travel. Uh, and I, I remember the first attempt at creating bike lanes was someone went along and painted a line along the gutter. And that was deemed a bike lane. And it really isn't. It's not adequate for people with cycling. Apart from the fact they're cycling in the gutter give car drivers the impression that you actually need a very short gap between the car overtaking the cyclist and the cyclist. Mm. Um, and you don't. You need to have a much wider wider space. So I think part of it is that all of our new developments should have proper cycle and pedestrian ways that encourages people to get out of the cars, that they should be connected up to a better system, a better Boots, if you like, for cyclists and walkers. And there are all sorts of other devices, not just cyclists. You now have these um, kind of single wheel devices that you can stand on, and you've got segway things, and you've got various other things that people can be using as alternative transport to cars that get you from A to B. Um, and if we really want to encourage that to happen, we have to actually make a conscious decision to build a proper cycling infrastructure, a proper infrastructure for people walking using segway type things or you know uh, I've seen people on a, an electric skateboard um, yeah, cool. <laughs> you know but these are all perfectly valid ways in which people can go from A to B in short journeys mm-hmm. so we need to actually make a real conscious decision to change how we're set up so that we can create a proper infrastructure um, starting in our, our towns and villages but building it out then to connect them up in some shape or form no, I love that idea. I just want to go back. Um, the idea that uh, leaving beach is actually more used uh, than Kirkcaldy because Kirkcaldy has nothing on that beach to attract it to the local mm. area. There's nothing on that beach at all. Apart from like the, the lorry parking area. Yeah, that is park. all they have. They have a lorry parking area and a small cafe, which is a good cafe. I'll a get, fantastic I'll give it cafe, yeah. Great, great cafe. We've been gone for years. Um, but again, if they were to utilise it in the same way that leaving did, like putting just like loads of things there and amusement, uh, amusement kind of stuff. But there isn't really an amusement thing in Kirkcaldy. There's nothing in Kirkcaldy. There's the beach and then the lorry park. <laughs> but I mean like literally nothing. anywhere. I don't think there is an amusement in Kirkcaldy. I don't know. I mean there probably is in the high street somewhere. 
Or maybe no, actually I've not been in the high street for a while. So yeah. there you go. Yeah, uh, so the reason I laughed at the uh the the do- the dolphin thing, I think it's dolphins. It was the dolphins uh, were doing. I think so. it was uh, no, dolphins. No, 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 I remember no I it was because I remember writing a bunch it was of a big, it was a big hang. I remember I remember writing a bunch of statuses about this with loads of swear words and uh, big stupid metal wheels. Yeah. yeah, with swear words in between each. <laughs> yeah, uh, but the reason I laughed at that was because uh, we've talked about that with a couple of councillors now, and every single time that it was, gets brought up, <laughs> they laugh. Yeah. So they, they totally dismiss the the concept in full, and so now when it comes up, I just laugh. It's yeah. just an automatic thing that happens now. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I quite like the idea of... Uh, Something that has windows that are usable being in front of the beach. Because yeah. as you say, the, the swimming pool, you're not you're not looking outside, you're busy Can't swimming and stuff. Uh, so yeah, I, I quite like that idea. I think I think it's about harnessing the the um the natural um space, but it's also about trying to look at how we do that in a way that um doesn't make it tacky, doesn't make it kind of you know, it isn't going to be something that kind of just goes up and then it's fine. Yeah. We've got to look at the sustainability because that fundamentally is, is the word we should be using almost in everything. It's our sustainability of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that we know for certain is that Leva needs an economic injection. It needs something there that will make a big difference. Adding a train link will make a big difference in my view. Adding something that draws people in. I like the idea of having hovercraft. I know they, they tried this idea of a hovercraft between Bellow uh, and Fife, um, and I got the feeling that the Edinburgh Council didn't really like it because they said that they, I think they turned it down because they thought that having a hovercraft station wasn't in keeping with the um, local area, the planning-wise. And then you look at the old Royal Infirmary where they've got this wonderful old Victorian architecture and they've stuck these big glass boxes in between and you're going to <laughs> the same council who yeah. have said that well, this doesn't quite fit in but up here in you know the historic part of Edinburgh we can stick big glass boxes in amongst all this Victorian architecture and that's fine mm. um, you know it, just, it just doesn't doesn't gel but because I kind of think that the hovercraft would have attracted tourists it would have attracted people who are going to work you know if it takes you a lot less to go on a hovercraft across to uh, um, Edinburgh and you get tourists coming back because they just want to go on the hovercraft, they're going to come and they're going to buy things. Yeah, yeah. It just made so much sense. Um, and hovercrafts are just cool. Like, my idea is to put dojums everywhere. Oh. You build dojums, <laughs> you build dojums, the people will come. It's a famous that's, 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 that's laughable, but it's also... <laughs> that's also good I idea. think that could work. Like, you make... A couple of hundred quid a day for the economy. That's pretty. That's pretty solid. <laughs> oh, that's why I'm not an economist, because my idea is dodgems. The, the other thing to, to look at, if you, if you look at, um, there are towns of, of kind of small towns that have um, established themselves as food towns. So they've created a kind of specialism around food. They get lots of people going there yeah. because of that, because they know they've got a huge amount of choice, or book towns, or whatever. I mean, one of, maybe one of the things that we should be looking at for, you know, leaving or the leaving area or or uh, the permanent or, or Burnt Island or whatever is 
look at other other specialist things that could be defined for a particular area and create you know something special there. And maybe I'm not going to suggest this as a proposition, but maybe a dodgem pack would be your proposition for one of them. Yeah, leaving hopefully because that's closest to us. I'm oh. going to say that was uh, Bruce Henderson's official uh, idea. <laughs> Vote for Bruce Henderson and you'll get dodgems. I've seen some car drivers who think we already are. There you go. So, can I ask... Oh, you, sorry, you got me. I'll, this is just a, a slight question for me. So, I am... I, I have to be unbiased in this podcast, and I've said that in every podcast while saying something totally not I love you do that every unbiased. podcast. It's amazing. Right. <laughs> uh, but, can I... So, we spoke briefly about uh, assisted... assisted. Well, we talked about dying with dignity, but what we're talking about is, is assisted dying, really. Uh, so, so can I get a couple of answers to a couple of policy ideas of will you support assisted dying if you're elected? I have to say I would have to think about it carefully. Um, when Margaret was talking about it, I thought about it long and hard. Um, I don't. I think one of the reasons that people avoid it is because it is actually quite a difficult issue. I think. When Margot was talking about it, she was talking about having some safeguards. It wasn't just a case of people flippantly going, ah, today I'll just end it. <clears throat> it was about actually thinking it through and having a, 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 a proper um, a proper process involved. Yeah. I think on balance, people should have a right to be able to have more control over their lives, perhaps, than they do. So I think there's a part of me that thinks, yes, and I'm not in a place where someone is who maybe feels they want to have assisted dying. Um, I think it must be a really difficult place for someone to be uh, because it's hugely emotional um, and they'd have to consider a whole number of, of, um, of issues and their family would as well. So I don't think I would be able to say carte blanche, absolutely. I think if we were reaching a point where we're coming to make a decision on this, I would have to think very long and hard. I would want to talk to people just as Margot had done, and I'd want to get a real sense that this was the right thing to do. And I would want to maybe introduce it on a limited basis initially to ensure that the safeguards worked. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. So my second question, and again, not saying which side I come down on it, uh, <laughs> would you support a drug reformation refor- drug changing laws Sorry, I- <laughs> Sorry, say that again. <laughs> I've messed up I've messed up the word that I was thinking of would you would you support changing uh, drug laws so that at the very least people who aren't criminalised for drug addictions they're helped medically and things like that again not saying which side I come down on mm-hmm. Just asking. Well, I, I think I probably have a fairly unique position on this because I think what we should be doing, whenever politicians in their little bubble talk about legalising drugs, they all have a knee-jerk thing that goes, oh, no, we can't do that because it's illegal. And you're going, yes, that's the point why we're asking the question. <laughs> what I think we should do is have a proper rationale behind it. We should create a clear criteria 
I say, what is an addictive substance that should be illegal and what's an addictive substance that shouldn't be legal? And then we should take all addictive substances and there are a lot that are legal that might not meet the criteria to still be legal. So that's everything from tobacco products to alcohol to tea to coffee. Um, all of these things have a level of addiction. And a lot of these things change people's um, mental capacity, they damage their health, and all of these are, are legal, and we know that they damage their health. We know that they kill people, but we still have them as legal. And it's historical rather than by any rationale. So I think rather than just you know picking out one drug here or one thing here, I'd rather actually look at the thing as a, a much fuller, a much holistic, more holistic thing and say, okay, let's have that line and let's have maybe a, a great area either side to have some level of flexibility. But essentially, every addictive substance would then be measured against it. And the issue wouldn't then be about whether you have a specific bill to legalise marijuana, for example. Marijuana has been legalised in a number of countries. Yeah. Um, there even... <laughs> There have been stories of mayors of small towns whose solution to solving the, the, the financial shortfall of the town is to literally grow marijuana and make it a town, you know, income generator. <laughs> so, uh, I'm not suggesting that um, Don Perman or Concordia or even or whatever should do that, but I, I think know. we need to actually do that. <laughs> but but I think we need to <laughs> That's leaving sorted. You never need to worry about leaving again. Definitely. <laughs> well, listen, there, there, there was a, was, was about two or three years ago, there was uh, someone on leaving High Street who was growing uh, cannabis. And um, I think it was a nice hot day and they'd opened the window and there was this aroma and that's how they got caught because <laughs> someone went, that's not right. It was somewhere near the TSB, <laughs> uh, somewhere above it or whatever. But... Um, yeah, people need to be careful when they're doing something. But I think we need to have a proper rationale, a proper framework that says, actually, instead of just labelling things, let's look at the reality of each of these. And if something is legal, but it doesn't meet the criteria, we then need to phase it out and make it illegal. If something is illegal at the moment, but it, it passes the criteria, then what we should be doing is putting in a proper framework for it. And we shouldn't be demonising people um, because... That, you know, we don't have that rationale in place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I'm worried about time. Do you have time? Okay. Yeah, I've got a wee bit of time. Yeah. Right. Friday afternoon. Yeah, so so I've got time. So I could ask as many questions as I like, but I wanted to make sure that you had time because I didn't want to... Because we went longer than we, we normally do just by me being curious about what you think about things. Uh, so it's, it's kind of my right. fault. But I normally end with a more serious, more critical... Because people listen because they like to hear the political parties being criticised. So for every podcast, in order to be unbiased, again, I'm using this word, I don't think I've been unbiased in a single podcast yet, uh, I have to come up with something that's a bit more critical or can be more critical depending on answers and things like that. So we're at that point now. So the big thing that Renew are, uh, are in favour of is EU membership. Uh, yeah. so, so what is the actual position now? Are you still trying to rejoin the EU? Or are you just campaigning because you think the EU is better? I don't know the position. Right. I mean, there are two things here. 
in the short term, we're not going to be able to rejoin the EU, and we recognise that. So what we've suggested is that Scotland and Northern Ireland both voted overwhelmingly to remain in the EU. Northern Ireland has the Northern Ireland Protocol, which Michael Gove describes as the best of both worlds. And in the short term, why shouldn't we have a Scottish Protocol, where Scotland can have some more direct engagement with the EU than would otherwise be the case? In the medium term, we want to rejoin the EU. If we want to have, uh, I mean, the reason we joined the, what was the EEC back in the 1970s was because we had falling fish stocks. We were known as the poor man of Europe, or the sick man of Europe, sorry, because our economy wasn't doing so well, um, and so on and so on. And our membership of the EEC and then the European Community and then the, the European Union as it's evolved over, over time, and we see part of that evolvement has transformed our ability to trade. We have adequate fish stocks now because of fisheries policy and for whatever, whatever criticism we have of it, that's a fact. Um, we've had tremendous benefits, they're educational, cultural, um, and so on. And Scotland's future, in our view, rests in the European Union. We believe the United Kingdom futurized the European Union as well. So we are unashamedly a rejoined party. Um, what's disappointing is that Labour have now said that they are going to make Brexit work and they are no longer proposing to rejoin the EU. Conservatives are backing it no matter what. Even the Liberal Democrats have said, well, you know, we'll just live with it. Um, we're not. We don't see why we should because the vote wasn't honest. Um, we've had uh, various prosecutions on the Leave campaign. Uh, there were votes that went missing, 1.1 million postal, overseas postal votes. Um, people were lied to on a massive scale and there's no protection and that's why we want a criminal code for politics. So that when we do have democratic events like this, that when politicians lie, they're not just going to be dealt with within the political bubble, they're actually going to face fines, debarment, and prison for being blatantly dishonest. And we need to do that because our politics has become so blatantly dishonest that people don't notice anymore. And we need to change that. So there are two things there. We need to be back in the European Union. But we also need something that ensures that politicians are actually honest because there's no protection for voters now. There's no protection for the people at all. And we've seen that. And we see that particularly with the government that's in the UK at the moment. Would you say that that view would be consistent with your view on Scottish independence? Well, our view on Scottish independence is probably the most unique of all the parties because we are not coming down in favour of the union or independence. Oh. And I know people sit there going, so, so what is your position? Our position is that we should stop just having those two options because there are other options. So let's rather talk about Scotland's future. So that could be that we accelerate the decentralisation of powers. So maybe we have a big increase in the powers for the Scottish Parliament. So that's not even independent. You could have a new act of union, for example, not just between Scotland and England, but Scotland, England, Wales and Northern Ireland, and have more equality between the four parts of the United Kingdom. You could have a Celtic union. You could have an Isle of Man option, where the Isle of Man is an independent state, but the UK provides um, foreign affairs and defence uh, for the Isle of Man. 
variety of other options there, and our proposition on the issue of independence or the issue of the referendum is that we should have criminal code for politics in place first, so that if politicians make outlandish claims, and they did last time, they have to have the evidence they're outlandish claims. Where they tell you things that are not true, they can be prosecuted for lying to the people. Second thing is that the referendum that is held should be a multiple choice referendum. So people should tell the politicians what they want, rather than the politicians telling people all they're allowed to have. And at the moment, that's where we are, is people are being told you can either have the status quo or you can have independence. If you want anything else, you're not allowed it. And politicians should remember they should be working for the people, not the other way around. And the other thing we should bear in mind is, and Kenyon Wright, who chaired the Constitutional Convention, um, made a big point of this, and he's right. Scottish nationhood is based on the concept of we, the people. And therefore, if we are coming to recognise and respect Scottish nationhood, then the people must make that decision. And finally, there should be an absolute commitment to a confirmatory referendum. We saw with Brexit what happens if you have a simple yes, no. We don't define what Brexit, we didn't define what Brexit was. We're not defining exactly what independence is. So I can hear the, the, the phrase, same as Brexit means Brexit as the goalpost move. You could have independence means independence. And the goalpost could be moving all the way and politicians taking control and effectively cutting the people out. So a confirmatory referendum is absolutely essential. And that's our position. If we're not supporting either, we're saying that what we need to make sure is we have a proper process, something where the people at the heart of it at every step and where the politicians have an absolute obligation to be honest and to be honourable, and where the maximum choice is given to people, and the people tell the politicians what they want, and the politicians then are obliged to pursue what people want rather than what politicians want. I'll be honest, you've uh, you've kind of ruined my my <laughs> critical thing. Uh, so what's <laughs> what's happened is. Because we're interviewing so many people, I've got your policy mixed up with somebody else's policy. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> when you started speaking, I was like, oh shit, that's the wrong, that's totally the wrong policy. So I, I, I've, no, I've no got a critical question for you. Uh, I, what I was expecting you to say is that the referendum was done and that was it and you're going to expect, uh, respect democracy. After you had said... Uh, that there were lies told in the EU referendum and that was going to be my thing until I realised that you were the wrong political party and so I didn't have that question anywhere. So thanks for ruining th- ruining my question. Well, you ruined it. That's okay. Bruce ruined Listen, it. What I, would, what I would say is that I believe in, and Renew Scotland as a group believes that there is an absolute case for a new referendum because... If you look at 2014, what was an offer was remaining within the UK and within the EU. And people like David Cameron said the best way of remaining in the EU is to remain in the UK. So the package was in the UK, in the EU. So that referendum result is dead. That That is not being respected. In the EU referendum, Scotland voted overwhelmingly to remain within the EU. And that's not being respected. So there are huge changes that happened since 2014 in particular. And what people voted for 
is not what is here. So there is an absolute case for another referendum, and we absolutely agree. But we want the safeguards. We want the safeguard of a criminal code. We want the safeguard of a multiple-choice referendum, and we want the safeguard of a confirmatory referendum. I think that is a good process, and it's a way of showing that actually we can do referendum properly, where the people are at the heart of it all the way. Cool. Um, okay, so we've reached... I apologize. Oh. Sorry, Sorry, what were you saying? I think I apologise for being the wrong party. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> um, <sighs> that was my bad. <laughs> right, so we've reached the final segment of the show. Um, this is about where we put you on the spot <laughs> for, ju- for just a, a couple of minutes. Um, one of my biggest petty hates in life is watching people at hustings and different radio shows and they're usually given like three minutes to solve terrorism or something yeah. like that can't be solved in the, those sort of three-minute segments. But what I do like is the kind of the panic it causes. Could, I'm, a bit, I'm a bit of a sadist and I do enjoy that. Um, so what I'm going to do now, Bruce, is I'm going to give you two minutes for you to tell the people why they should vote for you. And we're going to start three, two, one, go. Well, I think there are four key areas that are very important to me and to me New Scotland. The first is we want to end poverty, and we've talked about that already. Um, the difference it would make to people's lives is enormous. It would change communities, and it would change our economy. We want to have honest politics, so a criminal code for politicians, so that they actually have an obligation to be honest or face fines, um, debarment or even prison. Uh, take it out of the bubble and let them live in the real world. We want to have greater accountability and something we didn't touch on. The Scottish Parliament, when we're elected, 42% of the MSPs will be accountable to the party only. So they don't have constituents as such. I will be on the list. I'll take that situation, you know, being a, a, an MSP seriously. But they're accountable to the party. There are a lot of MSPs that Step down during the, the uh, parliament, a new MSP suddenly emerged from the list that the party is appointed, not the people. So we need to change that. We need to have more information on what politicians are actually doing. We need to look at how we rejoin the EU or how we engage with the EU through maybe a Scottish protocol. But we also then need to look at how we look at Scotland's future. And it should be about Scotland's future, not just about independence versus the union. It should actually be about what kind of Scotland we want. Let's look at the Scotland we want and then design the constitutional arrangement around the future of our country rather than have a constitutional change and then design Scotland around the constitutional change. It's future Scotland that, that's actually important. It's not independent of the Union. And I think that's absolutely uh, fundamental. Um, as me as an individual, I come into politics not to be a career politician. I want to affect change. I'm fed up with the way politicians operate. Is that it? Sorry, there's two minutes here, but you keep going, that's fine. Well, I'm just fed up with the way that politicians have operated throughout my entire life. I've seen politicians talk about um, all sorts of things, and they don't do it. Mm -hmm. They don't affect the change that they promise. And I think it's time that we take the politicians out of their bubble. I think it's time we burst it. I think it's time we change things, uh, and I want to be one of the people 
Perfect. There you go. I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed. What? At zero point during that two minutes, uh, two minutes and whatever, did I hear about dodgums and weed? <laughs> Listen, well, I, I did I Santa Claus at Christmas, which I absolutely adore. And one of the things I, I, I say to kids is, um, now, just remember, um, you need to be sound asleep when I come. Because, as you know, if you're awake and you start talking to Santa, Santa will gallop. And as you can see, Santa gallops an awful lot. And therefore, other children will miss out, and that wouldn't be fair now, would it? So, um, so yes, I probably speak far too much. Well, <laughs> I have to clarify that Bruce is a fake Santa, the real Santa was on our podcast in December, <laughs> and that was definitely the real Santa, so Bruce can't be the real Santa. So we're just clarifying well, that. So I, I help out the gentleman in the red suit. Yes. Um, yeah. and, uh, it is actually one of, the, you know, one of my favourite points in the year, because it's just, you have amazing conversations, um, and um, kids are just so amazing. Uh, they, they, um, and they tell Santa things. I mean, the, the parents are there, and it's fine. But they tell Santa things that they, they, they wouldn't normally tell, you know, they, they don't have that conversation with the parents. Yeah. And they just have a conversation with, with Santa. How was um, it this year, being social distancing? It was very different this year because most of the corporate stuff fell. Um, right, and yeah. I quite enjoyed it. But I did a lot more visits to houses, mainly around Fife and Dunfermline, in fact. And when we say house visits, essentially it was doorstep. So... Oh, you've done that stuff. Was... Pardon? I'm sorry, I was just happy that you done that stuff. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I've, I've been doing this for a few years, and I I genuinely love it. I mean, if, if I hadn't been doing Santa this year, I would have been genuinely disheartened. Yeah. Really, it, it, was, a, it was a huge... It's one of those things that it, it gives me a real boost at the end of the year, is to go and have these conversations. Um, I'm a very good Santa, by the way the record um but it uh but but this year was a lot more um just a lot more kind of smaller groups of kids and, and, and so on um but it was all properly you know with a face mask and i had i had a separate new a separate pair of gloves for each visit and i did that the hand washing between the the um the um the stuff that you put in your hand so it was all very covid friendly Mm-hmm. As it were, but um, it was uh, it was good. I enjoyed it this year. Um, a bit different to to the norm. Do you put the mask over but your beard or under the beard? The mask went over the beard. Okay. And it was a special. It was a special Christmas mask, so it wasn't. Um, it had you know reindeer and stuff on it and so on. So it was all still very Christmassy, um, and the kids were quite fine with that. And you know, I still got some you know, great requests for gifts and things. Um, but I also talked to them about things like the tidy theory, uh, which some kids kind of act as, you know, then I suppose tidy the room. Uh, <laughs> Can I just get you to confirm, Craig, you asked if you put the mask under the beard and it's therefore nice. ruining the illusion that it's a real beard. But then the, the, but then the kids wouldn't the kinder it's under the beard. Because it's under I the beard. I think they would. Nah. They would just notice like no, a, a, a mouthless face. Like from under the... Oh, aye. It would look weird. They aye. would ruin the completely... Right enough. Yeah. Well, he's far away from them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't see. <laughs> you have to just paint a mouth on the mask. <laughs> there you go. Don't underestimate, 
children are actually very sharp uh, and, and very um, various. But ultimately, when you're doing something fancy, it's a performance. I'm, I've been doing acting for a number of years. It's something that I enjoy filmmaking. Um, mm -hmm. And when you're doing something at fancy, it's a performance that counts. I, I did a gig in Glasgow a number of years ago, three or four years ago. And actually, by the time I got there, I realised I'd left the hat. So I actually I thought, I can't drive all the way back and get the hat. So I did the, the gig without the hat. And only one child actually asked about the hat. And they were quite good with that. So it all comes down to the performance. You need to kind of, I believe that there's a kind of magic that you, you every child should feel they've actually talked to Santa. And I think that's really important that they feel with that. That's why we got the real Santa Claus on the on podcast. The podcast eh? uh, he was not a councillor in the local area. Shh. He was a. <laughs> Unbelievable, Greg. He was the, he was the real Santa Claus. Yes, he was. Um, <laughs> I think we'll, well, perfect, okay. perfect, perfect way to end there. Yeah. <laughs> right, so, Bruce. I think we've got everything. Is there anything else you you feel like you need to talk about? Is there anything else? Well, there's one thing I would I would actually like to talk about. What one of the, I've, I've been involved in filmmaking for the last fifteen years, and and I think one of the things that I'm very clear about is we have some amazingly talented people in Scotland. But we have very few facilities. The government's approach is to have a big mega studio in Edinburgh. I think the weakness of that is that we have filmmakers in Inverness, we have filmmakers across Fife, yeah. we have filmmakers all over the country. And I think the bit that's missing from that strategy is five or six micro-budget film studios dotted around Scotland to bring filmmakers together, give them proper facility that's not hugely expensive, but that allows them to actually make more ambitious um, films. Mm -hmm. And that, I believe, would make a big difference towards actually having a Scottish film industry and not having a Scottish film industry. So that, that's something I'm quite passionate about. And if I'm elected, that's one of the things I would certainly push is to um, develop that kind of infrastructure. Awesome. Awesome. There you go. Well, I think that's, that's about it. You, you got any more, Craig, that you need to add in? No? You cool? Well, Bruce, we can let you go now. Uh, we've kept you uh, up, like way beyond your time. I think this is the longest podcast we've done for the politics thing. Yeah. I talk too much. Well, like, I kept asking questions that I didn't normally uh, ask another. And also, I got the party wrong. So that was That, <laughs> that was, was an fault. extra question that you've messed up. Yeah, I messed up, yeah. Amazing. All right. So, it's Bruce, not a professional podcast, it's fine. Yeah. 